0: This is a Three Brothers podcast. Hello, and thank you for choosing to listen to After the Revolution today. I have a few pieces of housekeeping to attend to before we get to the episode. First, I want to apologize for my microphone quality throughout the episode. Thankfully and appropriately, our guest Adam Kudyshop does most of the talking. Secondly, I want to be clear that this episode was recorded over a year ago, uh, sometime in 2020, being released now in 2022. Uh, everything that we talk about, pretty much everything, is still extremely relevant to today, and that's credit to Adam and everything he has to say, um, which is, is a really great starting point for a lot of the conversations that we have. The third thing is a content warning for the episode. Obviously, with the prompt, which you'll hear at the very beginning of the episode once it starts, um, inherently, these heavy subjects will come up. But in particular, we make mention of racism, transphobia, antisemitism, sexism, homophobia, and a very brief reference to sexual abuse—just one—but it is there. I wanted to be clear about that. Again, thank you for choosing to listen, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Adam Kudishad. to After the Revolution, a podcast that poses two open-ended questions to one of my favorite artists or storytellers. The first question is what happens after the revolution? When people stop dying due to their skin color, when people aren't being oppressed because of their intersectionality, when we eradicate these evils, what will the world look like for artists and storytellers? Working backwards from there, What steps can people take right now to end racism, sexism, ableism, homophobia, transphobia, xenophobia, the list goes on. How do we end these things? Today, I'm having a conversation with a truly prolific artist that creates and collaborates all over the Midwest and more. They are the Associate Artistic Director for Music Theater of Madison, an Artistic Associate for All in Productions. You can hear them on the All Arcadians podcast, the All Arcadians podcast, the H podcast. They're a regional performer, director, writer, music director, composer, and technician working with highlights like Next Act Theater, Milwaukee Opera Theater, Milwaukee Chamber Theater, Playwright Center, Skylight Music Theater. I'm sure there's more on that list. And in addition to all of this, there's someone that I genuinely look up to. Welcome to the podcast, Adam Kudishak.
1: Thank you. It feels weird to have somebody say they look up to me.
0: Just oh yeah, is that
1: weird? It's, it's not like, I just don't feel like I'm old enough to have Fair people enough. look up
0: to me. Fair enough, well, let's, let's, let's not, let's not, uh, let's dive right into that immediately. Um, I have experienced the same thing. I mean, I'm 27 and people have told me they look up to me and I, I'll, I don't know if I'll ever not find it weird, even if I'm, you know, 50, 60, 70 years old. So, right,
1: there's, there's the part of my brain that's 80 and just a curmudgeon <laughs> it's like everyone should look up to me, and then there's the the most part of my brain which feels like I'm still 20. That's like who who I'm a child. How can you look up to a child? But you should look up to children. That's the other part of it. So my my brain's right. so war. Right.
0: No. Yeah. No. Everything goes back to Stephen Sondheim. Children will listen. Uh, mm-hmm. You should listen to them too. Um, they're unclouded, right? They're unclouded by by insecurities.
1: Right. I mean, I not to get too deep with this, but like I anytime I wonder if what I'm doing is right, I look at if the younger generation appreciates what I'm doing. Because that's who it's for, right? Like, especially when it comes to to jump into the topic, especially when it comes to racism, like, I, I have certain days more than others resigned myself to the fact that I may never live in an anti-racist or a post-racial society. But like, we do the work so that the next generation will. So if the next generation isn't appreciating what I'm doing, if I'm not looking to the next generation as the guide for what I'm doing, then I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing.
0: That's a fantastic point. No, absolutely. Um, I, I have to agree with that. And you know, there's, it's, it's so weird because we have that friction on the other side of things that people older than us, you know, us being sort of the generation we're both in sort of people in their 20s and 30s. You know, I don't like to label things, but, you know, sort of Gen Xers slash more specifically millennials, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're looking to the younger generation for not necessarily approval, but to see if, you know, maybe, maybe it is approval. But on the other side of that, the friction of, like, why are you listening to young people? They're just stupid young kids. Like, listen to us. We know what's best when that's specifically not the case. So mm-hmm. that friction's interesting that we're kind of, you know, stuck between two things there. Uh, opposing sides, if you will.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, stuck to a certain extent, like stuck in that we have to listen to it, but like I, it's pretty clear to me where, where change is going to come from and, and that change is necessary for those people. So yeah, I, I, you know, we're, we are, we are forced to reckon with the older generations um, and we want to, educate them and help them see the wisdom of the youth movement in America and around the world today. But I take most things they say with a grain of salt. There is certainly wisdom there. Absolutely. And there are people that are of that generation that are doing the right thing or that are working or doing the work or any of those things. But um, oftentimes when I hear grand sweeping statements from that side of the generational gap, I, uh, big old pinch of salt.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, big old pinch of salt is is definitely necessary. Um, I mean, I kind of take a take take everything with a grain of salt, but but it's sort of a it's it's prescribed when it comes from that side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I appreciate that point. Um, just so so, I want to just talk about really quick before we get more into that, because there's so much to unpack with even just that. Um, I just want to sort of build a rapport between us, sort of let everyone listening know how we know each other how we met um and speaking of young people you know sort of one of the best things i've ever been a part of was three brothers production of spring awakening and that was such a young you know being used to working with faculty or other people who are sort of a little older that was such a young production team you know everybody was in their 20s or maybe even we had a few teenagers in the ensemble but I, that was, yeah it's an amazing it's an amazing project you were music. Uh, director in that I you was know, production
1: mm-hmm. manager yeah it, it was it was weird being the old hat at i was 30 at the time sure. and like i was one of the few people in the entire i think there were what like five of us before we brought the pit on board like that yes. were 30 plus it was me it was marie uh rick uh and like a couple other folks from around the theater uh two actors and uh
0: it was the only one who was even close to 40
1: yeah Ju- yeah julie yeah and she and it was, so
0: she was hip with everything she
1: was great right she was great wonderful uh but it was such a such a young product it was i just remember throughout the production not only being inspired by those those folks and and really you know admiring and looking up to them even though they were all younger uh, than than you know the, the few of us on the production staff that were a bit on the older side but it was it was truly a joy to just be a part of something that felt like they were they had all of those emotions it was exhausting i can't keep up with 20 20 year olds like like they the, the I they all still hang out like all of those the actors they, they've like formed this incredible bond and i love that for them and every once in a while they'll invite me to something and i'll like y'all are too y'all are too too young and, and spry for me i don't but I, I you know lots of love to the spring awakening cast and crew it was it was a really it was a special production uh,
0: absolutely and just to put a cap on that even when we, you know we brought we brought the pit in we still had these you know Patrick sort of brought the meeting age up a bit, but then we had these high schoolers, like this amazing 15-year-old guitarist and 16-year-old percussionist.
1: But I think, no, no, that, it, I think the guitarist was was like 18 or 19. She was in college. Uh, 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 Sophie. Uh, Sophie wasn't was in college. But our our, our our drummer was a high schooler. Drummer yes. was an incredible high school drummer. I I'm pretty sure he was a high schooler, either that or also just just barely in college. Right.
0: So yeah, but sort of even even with the pit, you know, on both sides, it brought the age up and down of the medium. But yeah, so we we met through the incredible Marie Credway through that incredible production. That was a great experience, um, and then you know, so we became we we became friends um, in real life, but also on Facebook. <laughs> this might be a weird direction to put this conversation in, but I want to sort of start here because um, you know, I one of the reasons I say I look up to you is because of of everything you sort of put out there on social media. And I know that social media is not the end-all be-all. It's really important that things happen in person. Um, but I feel like I learned a lot from your page, from your posts. And actually I went back to your post, mm-hmm. to to your page to catch up because I've actually been on a, a hiatus from all social media for the year, but actually Facebook since like October, I haven't been. So mm-hmm. I sort of caught up and there was a few, really. there's a few things on your page that really stuck out to me. Um, Um, that I wanted to touch on, because I just, I think that they're really important. Um, One of them, speaking of, you know, we were just talking about Spring Awakening, an amazing production, a lot of other amazing productions that you've been part of, I'm sure, me too, but your post about not missing theater really stuck with me, Mm -hmm. and that has a lot to do with the sort of the reckoning that, that came everyone's way, including Three Brothers even, which is, you know, this podcast is a Three Brothers podcast, but Three Brothers was on that list, still is on that list of theaters that a reckoning came their way of, wow, we're we're complacent in this in this problem. Like, yes, people are dying because of their skin color, but it's way way deeper than that. That just the the, the discrimination slash just the, the privilege that white folks have. You know, white executive boards, white directors, white actors too. So.
1: Well, I I think to bounce off of that, I think yeah. that there's a there's a component that's missing in the way that people perceive the way that black and brown people are dying because of racism and, and, and white supremacy. So we have this perception, we, you know, we talk about all cops are bastards and the idea not that there are not people that are good at their jobs, there are not, are not people that are good people doing those jobs, but because the system is corrupt, because the system is a white supremacist system, anybody working inside of that system becomes a bastard and you can be a good person and a bastard and it's hard to reckon with those two pieces. But as a former cop, I, I understand that. Um, but this idea that all theater makers are bastards, all humans in the United States of America are bastards because we are living in a white supremacist system that benefits white people and people that, uh, that people that are white adjacent, people that have lighter skin tones, people that assimilate into white culture, it benefits those people. And so Theatrically, we're still killing black and brown people. It's just more subtle. When the system does not allow them the resources to be successful, if that is their skill, if that is their passion, and we take that away from them, we are killing them. And so Ooh, I guess. It, it it's important to recognize that I think that, that, you know, we are just as complicit in the system. And, you know, we are, we are still harming black and brown bodies in our institution. Possibly, we don't have statistics for it, but potentially at the same rate as the police. Maybe more so. We don't have those statistics because it's a subtler way of harming those bodies. And that is something that we need to reckon with. So all institutions that are not BIPOC institutions and even some BIPOC institutions should be in a reckoning. And if they are not, they are missing the the opportunity to destroy and eradicate uh institutionalized white supremacy and that is there are a lot of institutions unfortunately that are not taking this opportunity for this reckoning because it is an absolutely necessary reckoning
0: that's that's profound uh, adam i appreciate you sharing that i mean that's that's going to be a tough pill to swallow for most people um almost all people but you know, I, I sort of, I've never looked at it that way, but that's, it, it rings true, certainly rings true. And um, sort of the reckoning being the norm, being like, you should be in a reckoning, that should be where you're at. And, and something you said, like, something you said about even some BIPOC institutions needing to be in a reckoning for certain things, that makes me think of intersectionality and, and taking everything into consideration, not just someone's race or skin color. Mm -hmm. you know someone's gender or their their orientation or anything where they're from everything
1: right it's there are there are problems across the board and what we see is a step forward for one and a step back for others and we cannot continue to see that so we're seeing more and more uh female artistic directors in certain cities there are cities that still don't have many but um i'm looking at you milwaukee but uh, there are uh, uh, there's some cities that are moving in that direction, but perhaps those are white artistic directors. And now there still isn't a push for BIPOC representation. Or we have seen in the last few years, a lot of LGBTQ+, specifically uh, gay, bisexual, pansexual, uh, artistic leaders in our communities. Sure. But what we're not seeing are trans and lesbian Uh, leaders in our communities, and especially not at the intersection of BIPOC creators and artists. So when that happens, sometimes we don't see the progress and there are, I don't know that institutions realize that when they make choices that are not intersectional they set their theater community back. If you think about an artistic director, an average tenure of an artistic director being somewhere between 10 and 20 years, when you hire an artistic director that is not going to provide that intersectionality that the community needs, you are setting your theater community back that 20 or 10 years. That is an incredible amount of damage to a community that is attempting to change. At this point in time, intersectionality is the number one priority and that like to go back a little bit to when you when you said i don't miss theater i don't miss theater as an institution i miss performing i mm-hmm. profoundly miss performance and being on stage and collaborating and writing and doing all of these things in a live venue i do not miss the institution of theater that has existed for years to hoard power and privilege to a select few, predominantly white, predominantly male, predominantly straight, predominantly cisgendered, able-bodied, thin, anything you can think of. What we have been told is the norm in America, which we know is not the norm. The system that works for those people, that is what I do not miss, where everyone else in that system is abused so they can hoard that power and privilege. That is what I do not miss.
0: Well, uh, that's a staggering clarification and I really appreciate it. Um, no, I, and I, I agree. I miss, I miss the collaboration too. And, and, and sort of, I guess, filling that void with collaboration on these types of projects, right. Or trying to collaborate on what we can do to actively, you know, actively offset those, those communities being set back. That's 10 or 20 years, you know, that's, that's, Intersection, yeah, making sure intersectionality is a part of it, and sort of intersectionality and collaboration, those two words go hand in hand for me, I suppose. They, they both, you know, they share the same cue, in my opinion. Um, I wanna take this a step further, actually. This you, since, you, since you've taken this to where it is, which I appreciate, I wanna take it a step further to educational theater and education, because that's where a lot of people who are in the theater industry today um, have came from i got my undergrad bachelor in theater arts at uw parkside you got yours at uw stevens point correct
1: uh my my degree is actually in music education music education got it but you so you did steven's point yes. a,
0: right a, a fine arts or a, an, an artistic major mm-hmm. at a uw state school mm-hmm. um, i don't know if our if our um experiences or perspectives are similar in that fashion but looking back that is where a lot of those issues at least in my personal complacency or perspective that's when i started was my undergrad education in theater slash music i was a music major at college of lake county before i was a theater major so mm-hmm. even even there i saw that as well um so i don't know if you have anything to touch on that i i certainly do
1: in in the structure of education also I will say having been a teacher and having the utmost respect for teachers and the good teachers out there that are doing such incredible work to build up students all teachers are bastards the system is racist and so at the collegiate level it's it's more so at the secondary level it, it is more so that yeah, because good. of because collegiate institutions are thought of as elite and I'm using air quotes for that uh, they are thought of oh, as Right. They're, they're businesses, but they're thought of as elite, right? And elite in our country is code for white and it's code for male. And and academia is incredibly destructive. I'm actually writing a musical about it with my dear friend Heidi Jostin uh, for Music Theater of Madison, but uh, and how the microaggressions present in academia that absolutely decimate the, the communities that are attempting to gain footholds in academia. It's going to be a comedy. It'll be fun. Uh, but the uh, oh man, but in academia, and, and that isn't to say there aren't people doing good work. When I was at Stevens Point, I, I had professors that were attempting to, to bridge that divide, but they didn't have the awareness that they could have, as, as, especially in Steven's point. This is a predominantly white community, uh, some conservative policies, uh, conservative politics in, in the community. There is a predominantly white uh, campus. There isn't an awareness of the level of engagement needed to be anti-racist. There was a lot of not racists, but very few, if any, anti-racists. Mm-hmm. And this is a shift that is starting to become known. And there and there were also a few people who thought they were not racist, but weren't willing to examine to recognize that they were in fact racist. Uh, and so th- that isn't to say that I think any of these these people are bad people. Right. They're people that need awareness and resources. Now, where we get those awareness and resources that is a whole other can of worms. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember I actually had one of my professors reach out to me after uh, George Floyd and uh, I became a bit more vocal on social media. I had always been sort of a don't rock. I had been having these conversations privately but I hadn't been willing to go out publicly. And finally I was so angry that I was like, screw it. I'm gonna lose a lot of friends. I don't care things need to change and I became more vocal on social media which is a good platform to remove racist people from your life but um I had a professor reach out to me one of my one of my closest professors just she she was she she felt helpless she she felt like she didn't know what she could do and that's a failing of the institution right I mean of course individuals are responsible right and uh, no one is off the hook but As institutions, especially institutions thought of as elite, that have resources of education, you're an educational institution and you're unable to educate your faculty, that to me is unconscionable. And there's always this sense of reaction. There's always this sense of reaction in academia and in theater of, oh, this has happened, we must react to it. These are people who claim to be the most intelligent creative people on the face of this planet. right? They pride themselves on that. Where is the foresight? Where is the sense of, I can predict where these holes that people are falling through are and I am going to fill them before it becomes a national scandal. Where are those people? Well, the answer is those people are usually people that are marginalized by a gaslighting gatekeeping institution that does not want to hear their voices because it challenges the privilege and the power of those that already have it.
0: Certainly, no, absolutely. Um, another home run, that's, that's no, that, yeah, I couldn't say it better myself um, and that 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 just leads me back to, to colleges being sort of business and reminding me of corporations where anything, you know, even even members of their own own association or of their own institution, they, they don't want anyone challenging their power, their privilege, because that means they have to change or that means less money for them, less money for the institution, less power, less elitism. Um, you know, sort of leveling the playing field, which they don't want, which I guess Sort of is is a definition of privilege in and of itself.
1: Mm-hmm. My uh, to to bounce off of that, I think one of the things that will start to change, and and we need to find this, and it's so difficult to come by because we live in a in sort of a corporate business structure in every aspect of our lives is transparency and communication and accountability. Those three pieces, to me, are what we need right now. And they're, they're absolutely, it, it, PR departments have destroyed accountability. And that's not to say that, again, PR people are bad or bad at their jobs or any of that. But even in the theaters that I work for, there is this, well, we we can't be the ones that say what we've done wrong. We cannot be the ones that tell it how it actually is, because we will get run through the mud for it. And I, my dream is to work for a fully transparent theater company because you cannot be accountable if you are unwilling to admit your mistakes. You cannot succeed at the best of your abilities if you are unwilling to admit your failures. And we need to, I mean, we talk about cancel culture Cancel culture is accountability culture, and we have been trained to think if we have done something wrong, we must hide it because everybody is perfect, right? All of our celebrity worship, all of our historical knowledge has been sanitized of any sort of gray matter. George Washington was akin to a god. George Washington did nothing wrong. George Washington is who we should all be, despite the fact that we have changed a story that said that George Washington had dentures with the teeth of slaves into George Washington had wooden teeth. We have sanitized that story. We have disnified that story. And then we become unwilling to admit our own faults, take accountability for our own actions. And instead of holding ourselves accountable, for the harm we have caused, making amends, apologizing, doing our best to be the best we can be, and letting people decide what our sins deserve in the public light. Instead of that, we create more ha- ca- harm. We cause more abuse, and the p- cycle perpetuates itself. It
0: does. The cycle does perpetuate itself, and and you know, based on what you said. You know, with your with your analogy to George Washington, the longer that complacency and that unwillingness to admit fault goes on, the more deep seated the complacency gets, and the harder it gets to go further back and further back. For example, that Washington, the George Washington denture analogy, that's that's centuries in the making. The mm-hmm. reckoning of that. So so admitting your wrongdoing is the very first, you know, is ground zero for going forward. Mm-hmm. And ground zero uh, goes back into the negative numbers for, for many, and it's mm-hmm. so. I guess the longer the longer it takes for someone to get to that point, the more difficult it will be to get back to ground level.
1: Right, you've compounded your harm. Right, you've compounded that. So I think about someone like Aziz Ansari, right. When sure. I think about this, I think about someone like Aziz Ansari who, a situation was presented in which there was wrongdoing, and instead of taking accountability for that wrongdoing instead of apologizing and attempting to make amends. Aziz Ansari victim blamed, which causes more harm and then perpetuated the idea of murky making murky the, the idea of consent. Then went out in his next standup special and played the victim. So now there's three more harms. So even if he does realize that what he did initially was wrong, he has three more harms to make up for right? He's compounded the issue. So when we're dealing with this, right, there there can be centuries of compound harm. And this is what we mean when we say, you know, all theater makers are bastards. This is the complicity. I know that you're not out there actively harming Black and brown bodies, or at least I, I deeply hope you're not out there harming Black and brown bodies. But the complicity, right? You know that abuse is happening. You know that harm is happening. And you are not being accountable for those things. You are doing the mental gymnastics. To, to think about theater, here's, here's a great one. Here's some mental gymnastics to go through. Let's use Kiss Me Kate. Kiss okay. Me Kate okay. Okay. Kiss me Kate has been around for hundreds of years, right? Kiss Me Kate has been causing harm for hundreds of years. Empirically, people, thousands, hundreds, millions of people have said, Kiss Me Kate causes harm. It, uh, It normalizes abuse. It causes people to laugh at abuse. It it makes us feel like abuse is something that is not as damaging as it is, right? It minimizes the role of abuse in life, specifically physical abuse against women. Um, Although in gender swapped casts, it just does the same thing to men or non-binary people or whatever it is. It's a play about abuse without holding people accountable for being abusers, right? Now, Imagine the mental gymnastics it takes for someone to say, you know what, for hundreds of years we've gotten this wrong, but I can do it right. Imagine those mental gymnastics. And here's the thing. I have had that thought. I've had that thought. I know that thought process. We all have that thought process about things. Like, oh, I really like this part of that thing, and I want to keep it, so I am going to turn flips in my mind, you know, I I am going to look like a diver coming off of the high dive to make this work in my head, and then I will present that to the audience, and I will be the savior of this thing that I like. That has been, people have been failing to do for hundreds of years, and I am not here to tell you that you're not that person, but really look at the accountability of what you're doing when you do that, right? Right? really look at yourself and say, am I the one person equipped in the last thousand years that can fix this? Because likely the answer is no. Sadly, you're great. I love you. You're doing great work, but maybe reconsider. You can still like parts of that thing. You can still use that thing, parts of that thing, educationally. You can still use that thing as a whole and explore the context of it. But should that thing be performed in its entirety for audiences that it can harm? That is the question you need to ask yourself. That's the question. And is perpetuating this harm also harming communities that are attempting to get their stories told now, the contemporary stories, the stories that are often overlooked and not added to the canon in lieu of something like a Kiss Me Kate? Those are the questions that we have to ask ourselves rather than continue to pretend that harm isn't coming from something or pretending that we can mitigate harm because when we say when we say i like this and i'm going to keep doing it even though it causes harm that is cultural imperialism and that is how we got into this mess in the first place
0: 100 yeah cultural imperialism that is that's that's it and and it's it is sort of self aggrandizing to say that like, or sort of self gratifying. that, Oh, this is causing harm. I'm going to continue to do it. Maybe I can do it differently. Uh, and the contortion of the story to try to, to, to fit it into something that's not doing harm or doing less harm as if that justifies doing it in the first place. The other word, The other word that comes to mind is just plain audacity, like the audacity that you think that you're that person. Like, like you said, I've had those thoughts about certain things too, right? I'm, I'm I'm straining to think specifically about that actually. Like I've I've always loved I, mean, I would love to direct every single Shakespeare, and that one. How do I do this? How do I do? How do I tell the original story? Maybe I'll do the musical. That's I've had that same thought process as you. I've never come close to ever pitching it to a theater because I've never thought that I was the person that would be able to bring that in. Properly, if there ever even is a way to do
1: that. Um, right. And if it's if there is a way to do it, it's the people that are being harmed. Right? If you look at Merchant of Venice, if somebody's gonna save that show, it's it's the Jewish community. And that's not to say that if if one Jewish person comes out and says it's okay, you get the rubber stamp to do it, or that if a member of the Jewish community does direct it. And there are other members of the Jewish community that come out and say that it's harmful. It means, you know, there, there is gray on this. And what we continue to not examine is the gray. We want things to be black and white. We want to be able to be creative, right? We've all retconned endings in our head. We've all done those things. We've all, and sometimes, sometimes when you do something like that, you you do mitigate harm you are able there there that's not to say that nothing has ever been bailed out by a reimagining or a creative imagining or a reinterpretation mm. of the original material that's not to say that that has never happened but that is to say that you have to be absolutely doing this internal work as you're looking at this material and really making damn sure that you have enough people telling you, if one person says, nope, this is harmful, stop. If you're doing something like that, stop. And there, there, every time we do this, right, every time, this is where people always cancel culture, cancel culture, cancel culture. It, I, I will say that people generally only get canceled if they do something that's absolutely unforgivable or they are refusing to take accountability for what they have done. Those are sort of the two spaces that the people actually get canceled in. And so, one, if you're afraid of cancel culture, start being accountable for your actions. But two, um, because it's the re- it's the response more than the harm. The harm, of course, is important. Right? Yes. But the response to the harm is more important to whether we remo- remove you from our spheres. And my big problem with a lot of things is people are talking about, oh, well, you know, Dave Chappelle is so great for the black community. How can we cancel him? Cause he doesn't like the trans community, right? What, what do we get? We, we lose that from the black community. And my response to that is I bet there's a Dave Chappelle out there who's not a transphobe that we have never heard from because this Dave Chappelle exists in our spheres. No, that's, that's
0: incredible. That's that's, that's absolutely how we need to think. That just goes right back into intersectionality and not justifying someone, someone's actions or inactions just because of the good they've done, looking at the entire picture, the good and the bad all at once.
1: Right, because to keep going on the Dave Chappelle analogy here, sure. what Dave Chappelle is doing is dividing the Black and the trans communities, which, one, causes incredible harm to the Black trans community, but yeah. two, he makes any any black individuals or african american individuals or african individuals that follow him and see the good work that he's doing for their community and potentially if they have bigoted ideals education that tells them that you know transphobia is okay he's reinforcing that So now there's a section of the black community that are transphobic and trans folks feel like they are not welcome in the black community. So now there is a dividing line between the black community and the trans community. So when we're fighting for black rights the trans community may not show up. They have been, they have been showing up incredibly well for the Black Lives Matter community. But on the other side of it, when the trans rights come up the black community may not be there for it or at least an aspect of the black community may not be there for it. And so that intersectionality holds both groups back that lack of intersectionality, excuse me. That is why intersectionality is so important because let's, let's take another historical figure who caused harm and we have erased it. And that has caused issues for us in intersectionality. Mahatma Gandhi. Mahatma Gandhi.
0: I actually don't know this.
1: Yes, so Mahatma Gandhi was great for Indian people. Mahatma Gandhi also, and I do not remember the name of the country, but when he was working in an African nation, and I really can't remember which one, and it's bugging me. I want to say that it was like Zanzibar or or Madagascar or or South Africa or something. I know that those three countries are not the same thing. I'm not trying to conflate them, but those are the three names of countries that popped in my head. But regardless, Mahatma Gandhi threw the Black community under the bus to get rights for the Indian community. So Black people took 50 years step back in that nation, while well, the Indian community took a 50-year step forward, the South Asian community was able to have success on the backs of the black community. So that when now Indian people, or especially white people, that that, that story has been sanitized of that. Mahatma Gandhi is thought to be this saint. And so now instead of when Mahatma Gandhi is brought up as an intersectional leader, Black people are like, well, we know that you don't care about us because you don't know the actual history there, the harm that he perpetuated against our people, right? That intersectionality has caused a rift. And so, again, that's the lack of intersectionality that comes with sanitizing those stories and not holding people accountable, right? Gandhi did great work. Gandhi, Gandhi did incredible work for certain communities. And we can learn from Gandhi's mistakes, or we can erase them. And that is the problem, that we didn't learn from Gandhi's mistakes. We aren't uplifting the Black community by learning from those mistakes. Instead, we allow white moderates and racists and white supremacists to use Gandhi to tell a different story, to change the narrative. So they have now co-opted somebody who fought for bipoc rights to hold down bipoc groups because we allowed the mistakes to be erased.
0: No, absolutely. And, and, and that textbook positivity sort of sort of now Gandhi is immortalized that way, the same way George Washington is, um, where you know everything in the textbooks is everything positive; they get none of the negative. Um, you know that's, that's sort of a, a trope that you see online. A lot of people, you know. Uh, Talking shit about textbooks, that kind of thing. Um, And and history classes, like you said, why why are George Washington's teeth wooden? I never knew that it was, you know, I never knew that until you told me today. Um, And the whole thing about, about, you know, white moderates or even white supremacists sort of taking taking a spin on someone who fought for BIPOC rights. And I actually don't know if Martin Luther King Jr., I don't, I don't know if he had any intersectional issues or blunders, but he's just someone, when you said that, like Donnie, he's someone else that reminds me of just so many of his quotes are taken out of context and he's held up as this saint and people forget that he was on the FBI's most wanted list and that he was assassinated and murdered. Uh, right, so, by, by the very
1: government that created a holiday to celebrate him.
0: My God.
1: And it's, it's yeah. it, we, we, we vilify on the same token, right? This is, and, and I, w- I will not say this to, to lionize any of these people or to, or to say that they were good people, right? It, because, because Martin Luther King had issues as well. Martin Luther King did bad things. Uh, Malcolm X did bad things. They did good things too, right? That, that's part of the problem. We have to look at the whole person because we have to examine because the leaders in the movement now have some of the same problems that the leaders in the movement had then. And those will never get addressed if we don't talk about them, right? And on the flip side of the coin, there are leaders from past movements, I think of specifically South American movements, right? Uh, That where leaders did horrible things, right? Like, I'm not going to say Che Guevara was a good person. He absolutely was not. But Che Guevara is now held up as either the pinnacle of revolution or a monster, right? And Che Guevara was both. And if we don't talk about the things that Che Guevara did that were good and the things that Che Guevara did that were bad, we are going to continue to have this rhetoric that either makes them a saint or a devil. And no one is a saint and no one is a devil.
0: Absolutely, and and you need to examine both, and and you mentioning sort of current leaders having similar problems as MLK or Malcolm X, who did great things and bad things, or really anybody, take anybody who's done both good and bad, the backlash of the bad seems to bring, just seems to overwhelm the good if if that back if that bad isn't addressed immediately, like you said, if those bad things compound, if the bad comp if we allow it to compound, then then that sort of um, polarization happens. Where if we address the bad immediately and people are genuinely trying to change after that bad is reckoned with, the good can still ring true and that work is not set aside or that work is not undone by the bad that they've done as well.
1: Right, and that comes with unlearning being defensive when, when presented with new information, when presented with potential harm right? The, the, the default setting for most of us as humans is when someone criticizes us, we immediately make excuses, we immediately lash out, we immediately try to rationalize our behavior and their behavior in a way that makes us look best. And when we do that, we do are that immediately work. perpetuating harm. And I am, I am guilty of this. I've been working on this in my own life. Uh, when presented with new information, we need to stop We need to synthesize that information into our minds, into our bodies, into our subconscious, and then attempt to mitigate whatever harm we may have caused. We need to believe that we have caused harm, even if we did not intend to, and we need to work immediately to change our behavior we may even find that we didn't do anything wrong that maybe they are in the wrong maybe they are giving us that criticism or telling us we caused harm in a way that is actually toxic or harmful that we didn't actually do something but we can still look at our behavior and their behavior and make changes based on that right none of us don't have room to grow as people we all have room to grow as people. And so if we can remove some of that defensive mechanism, people will see that change right away. We may slip up again, but in those situations, I personally will say, yep, that person is doing the work. They are doing the work to be better and I will continue to follow them or I will continue to use them as a resource. And that doesn't mean like there is a, I won't say the activist because who is gonna be a firestorm, but there's a Milwaukee activist who is huge, um, and it came out that there was some misogyny, that there was some homophobia, some transphobia, not an intersectional individual, despite, you know, and when they were called out on it the first time, they came out and they were like, uh, yeah, I'm working on it. I know I've got some problems in my past uh, and, but I'm, I'm working, I'm growing. And I was like, great, I'll, I'll continue to give you the benefit of the doubt, let's see what goes on. And over the course of a year, they did not change they continued to make all of the same mistakes. It did not feel at all like they were working on it. And the thing is, this person wasn't being intersectional and wasn't working on the harm they were causing. And there are, was taking the spotlight and the money and the resources from those people in those communities because there are are activists in the area that are those groups, that are those intersections. And so I took my time and my efforts and my, I don't have any money right now, but I took my (laughs) efforts to those intersectional individuals that weren't going to be perpetuating harm while lifting up the community. But there is so much internalized, not just racism, but misogyny, transphobia, homophobia, that those leaders don't get built up. Those intersections are places where more harm is being caused and those people need our support they need to be our leaders and we are failing as a community right now in theater and as activists to lift up the voices at the intersections.
0: 100 um, percent and just sort of as you said synthesizing information synthesizing all of this that sort of binary of saint or devil or the binary of being defensive or being complicit you know taking information in allowing yourself to either you know change because you're right or they're right or there's a version of both, you know, that reminds me that that just sort of connects to me with an intersectionality, the binary of, oh, I'm trying to do good for this group, but I have to sacrifice any good or I have to do harm to this group in order to move forward with this group. That's not, uh, it's not an acceptable, like we have to find a different way. If that's the only way you can think of, we have to find something else to do. Right. In order to...
1: right. And I've been using a lot of really strong language. Right. And, and that isn't meant to scare people listening that you know are hearing what i'm saying ring true in their minds and are starting to realize like oh i have work to do good you can do that work and you can forgive yourself for when you fail right there is complicity in each of us we each have our own intersections that hold us back from reaching these things especially in marginalized group if you're if you're a billionaire cis straight handsome traditionally handsome white man okay, you have no excuses, give us your money and move on. But like, if, if you are, if you are at any intersection of a marginalized group, you have those barriers in your way, right? I may not be able to speak out against certain injustices in my community, because I need to make money in my community. And if I fight the system too hard, I could die. You know what I mean? And not because somebody's going to come kill me, but because all of a sudden I'm making zero money or I have to go get a different job that Mm -hmm. perpetuates my harm even more and my mental health deteriorates and my life deteriorates from there. There are all of these intersections. Intersections are so important because intersections are also our stopping points, right? You get to an intersection and it's a stop, right? Can I continue to cross this barrier. So I'll, I'll tell a quick anecdote um, here uh, about an intersection in my own life. Uh, because I haven't mentioned it in the spirit of transparency, I am a mixed race, biracial, Arab and white. I am uh, queer uh, and somewhat my gender identity is a little bit murky right now in my life, um, but I use any all pronouns unshuffled. Um, and so as, as I as I go through intersections in my life, right, especially as, as a biracial person, uh, I come up to these stopping points, right. So uh, I was recently, uh, and and as a as a biracial person, identity is very complicated, and so identifying with the Arab part of my life and the white part of my life is is a challenge, and I have been working on engaging more with the Arab side of my life uh, in recent years, and but struggling to do so um, because. For biracial people, most communities don't actually want you. It's, it's a little isolating. And so um, as, as uh, I was on this email list and there was this uh, conference, uh, festival for Arab writers. And I was so excited. I was so excited. And I was doing some reading on it and doing my research. And this is the due diligence part of it, right? Uh, doing some research. And they had sort of two founding principles. One was anti-racism. I was like, yes, nailed it. And the other one was anti-Zionism. And I just put my head on my desk because the Arab community in this situation, anti-Zionism being against the formation of a Jewish state. And to me, that is a very slippery slope into anti-Semitism. And the Arab community is rife with anti-Semitism. That is a place where that intersectionality ends, especially in America. In the Middle East, I'm not going to tell them how to deal with their foreign policy. That is their situation. In America, if you are fighting for anti-Zionism, you are on the road to anti-Semitism and there is so much anti-Semitism in the Arab community that that was a stopping point for me. Okay, I've reached an intersection of my, you know, my life and my commitment to be not anti-Semitic, anti-anti-Semitic, I guess, anti-swear, I don't know, whatever, Uh, (laughs) but anti-anti-Semitic and my identity as being a part of the Arab community. And at that intersection, there was an obstacle for me. I could either continue to engage with the Arab community and perpetuate harm against the Jewish community, or I could continue to isolate myself from the Arab community. And and so like for biracial people, like check in on your biracial friends right now, we're not okay. Because on one side of my life, I have white supremacy and the other side I have anti-Semitism. And so there is, and that is not to say that those are monoliths and that all Arabs are anti-Semitic and all whites are, uh, you know, white supremacists, but there is a large enough percentage of the population that has those beliefs, that it has those issues, that it creates this intersection obstacle, right? This barrier that prevents me from succeeding in the system or rising further in the system or finding that comfort. And we all have those. Every identity has those intersections. And those intersections, how we navigate them is so important. And I encourage people to be really thoughtful and seek the wisdom inside themselves when they reach those intersections where, and and there are times where you're going to choose to perpetuate harm, because you have to, like, the, the two choices are between harm and harm, right? Or dying right? Yeah. Or, being, or being destitute, right? Because our system is set up against it. And you have to forgive yourself in those moments and figure out how you can rededicate yourself to not having ever anyone else ever reach that intersection again. Because we, I, as somebody who is as passionate and active as I am in this community, I reach those issues every day. And I, I am forced to, and choose to, I, I have to hold myself accountable here too. I choose to perpetuate harm in order to help, hopefully, prevent more harm in the future.
0: No, it, it, is, it is a triage situation in that, in that, and you know, I, I can't begin to understand that as someone who is fully white. Uh, I, I can't, I can't begin to understand the the triage of choosing, you know, choosing where to perpetuate harm and sort of to minimize the harm as a whole. And you know, I'm, I'm we're we're approaching sort of the end of our conversation, unfortunately. And I would love to have you on as many times as you'd like to. There's so much to unpack with all of this but I want to sort of touch on the point sort of bringing bringing all of this together to intersectionality and you you I mean you' saying someone who is as passionate as can be and that's evident from anyone that probably knows you from anything that you post and just this conversation is evident that you're as passionate as can be but you you struggle with those things every single day and I think that's what brings on the problem of complacency is so many people, choose not to struggle with them every day and that is where that is like the sort of smallest most basic iota of where you can start to do work is start at least internally struggling with those if you don't have the mental energy to have a conversation about it at any given day please take that for yourself but let's maybe you and me can take these last few minutes to discuss sort of where that starts in someone's brain where like where that first piece of friction that first mental gymnastic, comes up and goes Oh, I don't really want to think about that, but it's 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 your duty to think about that. It's your privilege to not think about it.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think one of the most helpful things to me is sometimes we get scared of our first thought. You know, sometimes as somebody who has been in these neighborhoods all the time, who trusts these people, is whatever. I walk through a neighborhood that's a little bit lower lower income or whatever it is, and my first instinct, you know, where are my keys? Where are my keys at? you know wait where's that lock on my door I'm just gonna move my hand near it I'm not gonna lock the door but i am gonna move my hand near it or even something as simple as I once watched a young a young black child in a poorer neighborhood try to interact uh he, he had been asking for money um from people at, at a gas station and I unfortunately actually didn't have any cash that I could give him uh and, but um he had asked an an uh, an old uh, uh, an older white gentleman who, I assume gentleman, perhaps not, but um, who, an older white person who did not give him any money and uh, was, you know, had, seemed to be wealthier, you know, had a nicer car, all those things. And this, this man started to leave and this young black boy moved his bike in front of the guy's car and was sh- shouting something at him. And this man comes out of his car. He's like, I don't have any money for you. Just really aggressive. And the kid stopped talking because he realized that this man was misinterpreting what he was saying. And he just pointed and the man turned around and his gas can was open. The kid was trying to help, right? And that man's first thought was this kid is trying to get money. me. And your first thought can be scary, right? I'm sure he didn't go home and I'm I'm almost certain that that man didn't go home or that person didn't go home and and, and examine themselves in a way that was meaningful. I'm sure that they they tried to forget that event as soon as it happened. Your first thought is scary. You want to erase it. You don't wanna be accountable for your first thought but your first thought is your education. Your second thought is who you are as a person. That's an important thing to remember. Because when you focus on your first thoughts, you can start to go down the rabbit hole of maybe I'm just a bad person. Maybe I'm a racist. Maybe I'm a bigot. But your second thought, your second thought that thinks that is who you are. And it means that you're not. As long as you continue down that path of I need to unlearn that education. You are part of a system that makes you complicit, but you can fight that system. But... You have to trust your second thoughts. You have to eventually have your second thoughts overwrite your first thoughts, and that is what it truly means to take to hold yourself accountable and to take these steps. That's what you can do every single day, and that will help your mental health. I promise.
0: Right? No, it's a break, it's sort of breaking it down to build it back up. Unlearning to relearn the 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 sort of um, self consciousness of oh no, what if I'm racist? oh, wait, maybe that was just, what if I was racist in that moment and I was, I was being racist, but I, not, I, I, I can change.
1: Right, the answer is yes, you're racist and you're a transphobe and you're a homophobe, unfortunately, because society has made you that. Even, and this is important, even if you are a part of that group, right? The, the society has made us self-hating people of color, self-hating queer people, self-hating trans people, yeah. Everyone needs to examine those first thoughts. Every single one of us, there is not one of us that is off the hook on this. So you can also take, take some solace in the fact that we're all doing it every single one of us. We all have to face that in ourselves. We all have to hold ourselves accountable. But I do want to take a second here because I know we're, we're approaching time. You originally said that one of the prompts was, what does it look like at the end, after the yeah. revolution? What does yeah. it look like? Sure. To I think. On that. I think the answer, Right, We, we, we know, we, we've seen glimpses in, in media of what a post-racial society looks like or what a, you know, post-transphobia or post-homophobia or post-gender society looks like. And I mean, a, a great example of that would be something like Steven Universe, um, especially youth fiction does a really great job of portraying these topias. They're not utopias. They still have problems. But they're not dystopias like we're living in now, they are topias. And I think that those are great places to start to imagine what it looks like. But to me, what it it truly looks like is a room where you can breathe. I think that is the most important thing that we can think about, a room where you can breathe. And I say this because the first time I ever worked with Milwaukee Chamber Theater, um, I was cast to play a role that wasn't a BIPOC role, it was just a role. And I was very excited about it. It was a leading role. And i it's actually how I met Marie Treadway. Uh, she was my director. That's awesome. She gave me a chance to be a leading role that wasn't necessarily for an Arab or for a brown person. It was just a leading role. And I was nervous. You know, you walk into any room as a BIPOC person, you're used to being the only one in the room, especially in the theater world. And I walked into the room and it was the most intersectional room that I think I've ever walked into. There was maybe one maybe one cis straight white man in the whole room and he was an ally, an ally's ally, right? You walked into this room and I let out a breath that I didn't realize that I had been holding for 29 years. You know what I mean? That's what it looks like in the theater world after the revolution. That is a room that anyone can walk into and breathe. And anyone can be transparent and admit when they've made a mistake And at the beginning of rehearsal processes, we talk about who we are and not just our identities, but the pertinent things about us that are going to be important in the process. And we are capable of doing that and communicating those things. We can say, hey, I process this sort of thing really slowly. So if you can just bear with me on that, we're gonna have a great time. I really approach this from this angle. And I would appreciate other points of view um, but I will probably be bringing it back to this side of the table, or uh, this is a part of my identity and it's very important to me in this role and I would love to talk about where this intersects with what you are thinking. Those conversations at the beginning of a rehearsal process where you can breathe and communicate and not be afraid and not be alone. That is what it looks like after the
0: revolution. That's... that's uh... That's simply beautiful, uh, and thanks for your thanks for your your input. It's been it's been tremendous just to hear you talk about these things and bounce bounce these back and forth with you. Um, I really appreciate it. That's really all I have to say right now. I'm I'm, I'm myself I am myself leaving this conversation. So this is maybe the point. I myself am leaving this conversation um, with several things to reflect on throughout the day and throughout you know the coming days, um, and I hope that other people get the same benefit of of this conversation from that. So I really appreciate your time,
1: Adam. Thank you very much. I appreciate you using your platform to to help have these conversations and to help build everybody up. Like that's the point of this is we can all do this, but we got to do it together. And utilizing your platform for that is truly admirable, looking up to you right now.
0: Thanks very much, Adam. That means a lot, I appreciate it. Thank you. Hello, and thank you again for listening to After the Revolution. I wanted to thank Adam Kudishat once again for having this conversation with me for the podcast. And one thing before we go, the musical that Adam mentioned they were writing and working on during the episode is called Micro. And there will be a workshop performance of Micro on June 18th of 2022 at the Madison Opera Center in Madison, Wisconsin. There will be a podcast version to be released this summer of 2022, probably after the workshop, I imagine. And they're a fully staged production scheduled for the fall of 2023. I had a chance to listen to some of these songs and see some of the scenes during a staged reading back in December of Micro. And boy, am I excited to see it in its entirety um, and fully staged at that. It's going to be a really exciting process. And I, I wish the best for Adam and their writing partner and for everyone involved. I hope that you take a look at that on the uh, Madison Opera Center website. And I hope to hear your feedback about this and episodes to come. Have a good day.